it's Reading Aloud. My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of the show. Welcome to another episode. Today we have a chat with a person, and then we have another person reading a story written by a different person. So there's three persons involved today. Uh, first, let me say uh, thanks to all the gentlemen and lady who joined the book club last week for Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. It was fantastic. I gave everyone in the group a um, very small gift of vermouth, sweet vermouth, because um, the main character drinks vermouth throughout the, uh, the novel. Sam, who is my engineer and producer and was in that uh, book club, I saw just coming into the office today that there is a bottle of vermouth just lying on a table, sort of like haphazardly. I uh, know I've been drinking it at work. On, I, my, on I, my lunches. I see the top was not open. Yes, it is. Have you been drinking your vermouth yeah. at lunch? Mm-hmm. I promise it is. And, uh, I really? Yeah, I introduced several employees here who had, never, <laughs> who had never had it before. Then I take everything back, <laughs> and I appreciate you drinking the vermouth on company time. Yeah, I've been drink- yeah, I've been enjoying it unacceptably. What's going on here at Earwolf? Because now you guys have a kegerator in the office. So what, what's, what's happening? It's, it's for the show. The Sklar Brothers, one of their sponsors donated a kegerator and keg of beer. Are they sponsored by a keg company? I, I don't. I don't, that's just it. I don't think so. I think it was just so we're like, hey, we're fans of the show. Wow. Here's a kegerator. Jesus. That just go. that's, you're not going to get more. So Nate, com- now's the time. What things do you enjoy that not, if people are listening? Listen, I enjoy beer, but that's only going to reverse. Like if you want more content, send cocaine or something yeah. to the Sklar Brothers. I'll do three books a month if yeah. you send cocaine. Yeah, don't send a bunch of, I'm kidding, I would never do cocaine. You know why? Because Len Bias died the first time he did cocaine. That happened in 1987. Um, seriously, there's so many of my friends who are, I'm going off topic, but let's, let's have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy that the Boston Celtics drafted in 1986 or 87. Um, he was the first pick overall for the Celtics. His name was Len Bias. He played for Maryland. He's going to be like, this is when we had Bird, McHale, Parrish, Ainge. Like, we were already yeah. killing it. And then because of some trade, we had a really high pick. So we got this guy, Len Bias, who was like the best college player. So it was like, with Len Bias, we were going to win 50 championships. It was going to sure. be insane. The night that he's drafted, he does cocaine for the first time and dies. Jesus, man. So the next morning, the front page of the Boston Globe and a lot of other newspapers is like, Len Bias dead at 20 or 21. And so for me, and so many other young kids who grew up in New England at that time or were of the age of like, what's cocaine? We were told that if you did cocaine, you died. Yeah, that's Dare's dream story. You, yeah. Ideal dream exactly. story. Yeah. And so that that is still, and I understand if you do cocaine, you won't die, but um, that's still in the back of my brain, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons why I've never done cocaine in my Which life. Which is weird, because in reality, if you do cocaine, you can never die. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And that's our show. Yay! I have to go. Um, thanks, Sam. Yeah, little tidbit. Uh, we had an awesome live show last night. It was fantastic, ridiculous, and so much fun. Huge thanks to Christian Letts, um, who is the guitar the guitarist for uh, Edward Sharp. 
Um, he invited us to do a show at his uh, at the Edward Sharp uh, Pop Up Art Collective here in LA. It was so much fun, and uh, a big thanks to all of my guests who came. Um, everyone was so fantastic, and uh, I'm going to bring some excerpts from that show to uh, to our next episode of Reading Aloud. So stay tuned for that. Um, but uh, yeah, what do we do first? Should we get into the story, or we should get into a conversation. Let's get into the conversation. This is a conversation with a person. Um, she works for the LA Times. I, let's just get into it. Where, where do you work downtown? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's not that yeah. far from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. where the LA Times offices are. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very cool building. And is it a is it the original building that the LA Times was published in? Yeah. It. I mean. I mean, it's over. It's it's the one that blew up when there was like there was a whole like terrorist bombing of the building in like the early 1900s, and it's Whoa. a historical landmark. And it has all these great old like the Chandlers when they uh, like in the you know behemoth days of newspapers. Like they had a there's an old part of the building that we don't use anymore that's used for filming now mostly that is like was an apartment and all this kind of like super glamorous, awesome stuff. Whoa. Yes. That reminds me of the, uh, I have a neighbor who used to manage the Hearst building. Yeah. Are you, are you near the Hearst building? I, d I don't know where the Hearst building is. So okay. I don't know. Downtown is a mess. Downtown, I, I, it's. I don't know where it is. I only know where I am and then the stuff that's where everything yeah. relates. Like I have parking at the building. Where so lunch I'm is like, and where I'm like everything yeah. I do, I just park there and then I'll like take, you know, trains or whatever to get yeah. other parts of downtown. I don't yeah. drive anywhere else. There's a um there's a little um in the Hearst building which produced the Tribune, I think. Yeah. That was his paper back uh, in the day. Probably. Um they had his secret apartment and office there. Right. And there was a secret elevator that only he took to oh, his office. We don't have secret elevators. Yeah. Well, that, he was also a, like a sociopath too. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Kind of. And I mean, all 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 like media moguls are sociopaths, says the person who works for a newspaper. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. They're all wackadoos. I, I mean, look at like Murdoch. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trump. Who, yeah, Murdoch. Who's the guy whose face is moving in the uh, Viacom? Uh, Sumner Redstone. Yeah. Holy smokes! He, uh, no, he's not. He's no fun. Uh, so, yeah, he seems really spooky as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's a it's a weird it's a weird business to work in. It these takes days. a it takes a specific kind of um, psycho to own a media company because it's basically he or she just wants they want to control yes. everything. It's like it's I mean I think it's the same kind of psycho that are like wannabe president, which seems to yes. be like the worst job in the history of the universe. Absolutely, yes. and all those folks suffer from. Profound insecurity, right? Narcissism, yeah. Self doubt, yeah. What a mess. Exactly. Except for Obama, I love Obama. I like Obama too. I'll, yeah. I'll, I, I want him to come to the book festival when he's done. When when he's done being president, I would like him to come to the book festival. Now, how much money is he gonna get up front for his memoir? For his like tell all? His tell all? Oh God, it'll be. I would assume. You know, ten, twenty million, at least, something right? like that. Yeah, because like you know, like Shit. you give a Kardashian like six million. Yeah, so, my like, God. You know, and this is, and he's actually a writer. Like he's a writer before anything else. Oh, like he's such out. a good writer. So look out. Yeah, I can't wait. I know. I want twenty eighteen or something. That's my guess. Yeah, like, he'll take a year. 
He'll take a year. They'll announce. He's probably written half of it. I mean, it seems like the guy, you yeah. know, like he's keeping notes. He's always a writer. He writes his own speeches, it, you know, and he had a couple books before he was president. So he'll probably have more than one after right, depending on what he does. He'll of do course. one of the eight years in office, but then he'll go, you know, do something else amazing afterwards because he's young. Right. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. I can't wait. I know. I, mean, I don't know who the publisher is, but they—what a score! What yeah, a, I'm sure he has they're relationships. They're all gonna with, fight. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> the best bidding war ever. Yeah, they're gonna throw so much money at him. Yes. Anyway, Maret Orlis is here. Maret. Maret. Yes. Yeah, so that's okay. close. You're close. It's okay. I, I, even, are, I have many variations of my name. Out I even there. wrote it out like phonetically, and I still fucked it up. Maret. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Maret Orlis is here, and she works for the LA Times, as we've been discussing. Um, she is the associate director of programming and events. Yes. Welcome to Reading Aloud. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me. We're here to talk about the programmed event of the year for the LA Times. Yeah. Basically. Um, yeah. And that's saying something because that's fair. We do a fair number of events, but yeah, this is the biggest by this far. This is this is a monster. Yes. Um, everything else kind of par- pales in comparison to this sucker, right? I mean, man hours. Yes. Lead time, prep, staff, like the yeah. number of people who attend, the number number of people who participate. It's it's just huge. It's enormous. Yes. Um, we're talking about the LA Times Festival of Books, and this is coming April 9th and tenth. Uh, Saturday, it's on a Saturday and Sunday at USC. Um, it is the largest cultural festival in America. Yes. That's true? Yes, it is. <laughs> That's bigger than the Wing Fest in Buffalo? Well, literary and cultural festival. So, <laughs> so you know, we, wings are cultural, <laughs> but I don't know if they're literary. Oh, like, yeah, this no, is they're definitely they, there's, there's, the, there's the rub. But we have yeah. food, so. Oh, you do have food. We do have food. Okay. So, you know, we've, we've, we've incorporated the culture of food into our event. What, what is the main competition? Like, for, like is, is it the... Um, there's, there's a lot of great book festivals out there yeah. and Miami in terms of size oh, is, okay. uh, is a really big book festival. Um, people love the Brooklyn book festival, the Texas book festival in Austin has been just growing by mm. leaps and bounds, yeah. but there's also lots of specialty book festivals. There's something called Y'all Fest that is a young adult book festival that takes place in uh, like North Carolina in the fall that last year opened up a sort of sister festival called Y'all West in Santa Monica. Oh, fun. And um, so there's also lots of – and those are not when, – when we're talking big, we're talking about the footprint of the event. We take over a whole college campus. We're talking about the quantity of people who attend. Holy moly. But there's different ways of measuring big. You know, you want something for everybody. And so right. there's lots of great book festivals out there that are sort of finding their niche and doing their thing that works for their town. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And they're the demographic that's showing up and the people who are interested in that. Exactly. Um, how long has this, this thing been going on for? This is our 21st year. Wow. Yes. Holy moly. Yeah. It is the festival's 21st and my 12th festival. Oh, my gosh. And I'm not dead yet. Wow. You've made it through. I have. Slowly but surely, it's it's beating me down, but I love it. I bet. When do you start, like, booking guests and hiring folks to, to be a part of the festival? We start usually in the fall. There will be a few people that will email me from publishers or something like that in, like, even in the summer, email us and say, 
we have so-and-so coming out with a book next spring. Would you be interested? And there's such an automatic yes that yeah. you're just like, sure, but you don't really do anything about it. Yeah. In the fall is when the publishing catalogs for the spring are coming out and when the publicists at publishing houses are really starting to, to think about their publicity tours and things like that for authors. Mm. So mm. we want to try and be in sync with that with our planning. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we start to look at who has books coming out. We also look at just, you know, L.A. is such a huge literary center, and there's so many amazing authors here. Yeah. You know, so that's a big part of, you know, we have lots of people who come from out of town and overseas to be a part of the festival, but we also, you know, L.A. is our core. That's who we are as the L.A. Times. That's what the festival is. So yeah. we have a huge component of L.A. authors. Yeah. Um, so tell me, I have a bunch of questions, but. Go. So the festival takes over USC. Yes. The entire campus. Yes. It's a madhouse. Yes. Um. Let's talk names. Can you drop a few names as I far as— I can absolutely you... drop a few names. Okay. We have Carrie Brownstein from Slater-Kinney. Oh, awesome. Um, awesome. We have Ariana Huffington. We have Whoa. Reza Aslan. We have Padma Lakshmi. We have the Property Brothers. We have Saba Tahir, who's a great YA writer. Kwame Alexander, who's a middle-grade writer uh, and poet who won the Newbery and Coretta Scott King Awards last year and has wow. a new book coming out. So just like every, you know, yeah. Dan Santat, who won the Caldecott for illustration last year, has a new book coming out. So just Tay Diggs has a children's picture book, so he's going to be on our kids' stage. So Whoa. everybody. Holy cow. Yes. There's a kids' stage. Oh, there's a ki- there are nine stages. So Jeez there's Louise. a kids' stage, a young adult stage, a cooking stage. USC has their own stage that they program with great student acts from around the campus, bands, uh, mm. performance groups, things like that. Um we have a travel stage um, with, like, travel writers and travel tips. Wow. We have uh, OI, which is the Times Spanish language publication, has a sort of bilingual cultural stage. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many I've done now, but that's a lot of yeah. them. Yeah, oh, my God. Um, yeah, so we have – and then we have sort of our main – we call it the celeb- the LA Times main stage. It's where a lot of our celebrity authors speak. Okay, like, uh, like Buzz Aldrin. That is right. We have a guy who's been to the moon, and now he's coming to the festival. Holy, Which one do you think is better? I don't know. I mean, USC is – it's in a rough neighborhood. So it I would is say in a moon. rough neighborhood. The moon is probably better you and more You can't get mugged in the moon. I don't think that he can write a book about his entire experience at the festival. Like no. you can about well said. going to the moon. Uh, is this a book that he, that recently is published? Or yes. Did, is it, wow. Yeah, he's Why written. Why did it take a, Buzz so long? Oh, he's written many actually. Okay. So this is he's written books for kids and he's written memoirs and then oh, this okay. is sort of a little bit more of a leadership sort of life tips from a man who's been to the moon. And I'm God like, who, who don't you want to take life tips Wow-wee. from but a guy who's been to the moon? Wowie. Yeah. You also have uh, one of my favorites. You have Jonathan Gold. I love Jonathan Gold. Yeah. is He has – I don't think there's anyone who doesn't like Jonathan Gold. He's great. And he is a really, really just nice guy too, yeah. which is, you know, advantage of working at the Times and oh, the fact God. that we do a lot of food events yeah. is I get to talk to Jonathan about like where he's eaten. So Jonathan Gold, to my listeners who don't know who he is, he's a uh, food critic for the Times and he won a Pulitzer Prize a couple years ago. Yeah, uh, He is arguably the most most well-respected food critic in America. Absolutely. There, right. have, there have been polls that we didn't do ourselves where chefs have said that yeah. they are that he is who they want to listen to. Exactly. Jonathan Gold is the person that you go to. And yes. it's not about – he covers um, uh, like very high-end sort of linen tablecloth kind mm-hmm. of like very, very – like Michelin star places. Right. But – 
so much of his content, like the nuts and bolts of his stuff, are weird taco trucks it's in the San Gabriel Nobody Valley. Nobody knew who Roy Choi was a long time ago, and but Jonathan knew. Like, Jonathan's yeah. the guy who knows before everybody else knows. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so excited to see him because he's, he's such a He's awesome, character. and he's on a panel with Alice Waters. I mean, that's a great— Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, no, so there's—I want to transition to panels. Okay. So there are open discussions amongst, you know, bright people about yes. the state of the universe. This is true. Um, we have authors talking about their work with other authors. Yep. We have chefs talking and, and uh, talking to food critics. Yep. Um, tell me what other sort of panels you have. Do you have – can people come and just sit down and, and listen to people talk about politics and – I mean, is it all – everything is there. Everything is there. It's a free event. Um, that's, you know, really great. Like that's this insane is, too. You know – it sounds very cheesy and like a PR person wrote it, but, you know, the LA Times considers this their our gift to the city. Yeah, and, yeah, And, um, you know, it is everything that is outdoors is just, like, wide open, and that's where those nine stages I was talking about are. There's open seating. There's standing room only. We've had, you know, 300 people sitting at a stage and 1,000 people standing room when Betty White was there a few years ago. Wow. So there's wow. tons of room. The indoor events are ticketed. They're only ticketed – because there's crowd Limited. control capacity yeah, issues, and we don't it. want to get in trouble with, like, the fire marshal and yeah. get have things shut down. So, But tickets are available the Sunday prior to the festival online. Um, so so that's— Anybody can go online. We also hold back for people who don't want to go online and get their tickets in advance. Um, they can go— to the ticketing booth at the festival, we hold back about 15% of tickets okay. so that you can just get them on site. And we because tickets are – there's a dollar service charge, but they're free. Right. Um, because tickets are free, not everybody uses them. They reserve a ticket. They get distracted by something else. They don't show. Uh, they don't show. So at 10 minutes prior to the start of any indoor session, we have a standby line. And if you haven't used your ticket to get your seat, standby line people get in. So you can pretty much – Get into anything. There's – like 99%. Every once in a while, there's going to be something that's just crazy. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you won't be able to get in without a ticket. But there's a good chance. And there's everything. There's election wow. politics this year, panels yeah. on that, kids' books, um, things on like biography, history, yeah, food, LA, sports, culture, everything. everything. Yeah. If you're interested in something, you can come down to the festival books and. There is something there for everyone. everyone. I've had people try and like challenge me of like, <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like to read. I don't like. I will have. We have bands. We have a music stage. Yeah. Uh, so John Doe is going to be playing. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. So we have we have something for you, no matter what you think. Yeah. <laughs> and then tell me about the booths. You also have a bunch of booths. We where have it's like great booths. Local bookstores and publishers and like zines and sort of exactly anyone, um, yeah. yeah so uh, like the best local bookstores like Romans and Skylight and Book Soup and yeah. Diesel and Mysterious Galaxy and they're all there um, yeah. and then um, lots of bookstores that you wouldn't have heard of local presses great lo- local presses like Unnamed Press magazines literary magazines like LARB and uh, the LA Review of Books um, and and things like that plus um uh, a lot of larger publishers will be there sort of helping to sponsor the bookstore booths because 
publishers aren't necessarily set up to do retail. Yeah, so yeah, they'll yeah. partner. Um, so it'll be like Random House and Penguin partnering with Romans and Book Soup or something like that. Gotcha, gotcha. At their booths. And then there's also lots of other stuff. There's like museums. Sometimes individual writers will, will buy a booth or like form a group oh, wow. of friends. And they'll be like, we all wrote and published our book and we're going to be in a booth here. Lots of writing groups, things like that. So wow. it's just lots of people come to shop. So Wow. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable event. So I, I – I, I'm a just say like I'm Joe, you know, Los Angelino. I yes. decide to head down to the Festival of Books. What is going to happen to me? I park at USC, I get my ticket, and then I have like a map, right? Yes, there's and a can, map. There will be a program in the Sunday print edition, you guys. I know yes. I, of the Los Angeles Times Can't wait. prior to the festival. The second. Yes, of, of April. the second of April. Okay. There will be a big forty eight page program guide. Okay. Um wow. and that has the full schedule. It has articles about what you'll see. It'll wow. it has ads, it has bios of all the participants, so you can start sort of picking what you want to do. Um, all of that information is online as well, of course, yeah. um, and we'll have those programs for distribution at the festival. You can take the Metro, because USC, Metro stop right there, so you oh, don't wow. even have to deal with parking if you don't want Fantastic. to. Fantastic. And if you want to take the Metro to Union Station and don't want to switch trains, we also have a shuttle coming from Union Station to USC and back throughout the weekend, so you can do that too. Wow. Um, but there's also plenty of parking. Parking does cost money. That's right. That's the rule of, of Los Angeles. Yes, um, yes. So uh, you get there and you just sort of decide what you want to do. You see what you want to see. You want to go wow. see music. You want to go find food. You ex- want to shop. You, there's somebody you desperately want to see. But I think I always recommend to people that, you know, pick a few things that you definitely want to see and make plans for those. Yeah. But give yourself a lot of time to explore. Like, there is so much to do. You're not going to be able to see everything you want to see. I already know because I hear from you. Yes, I hear from everybody who is mad that I programmed two of their favorite authors at the same, same time, time yeah. and they can't always see them. Um, but go find a new author. Go find an author you've never exactly. heard of before. You know, exactly. there, there are over 500 authors just on the panels and stages, not to mention the ones who are in booths and wow. aren't doing any sort of official programming. Yeah. So there are... There are authors for you to find there and discover, and discovery is a huge part of the festival for us. I know that you probably have to be diplomatic about the answer to this question, but is there someone that you're most excited to see that you're so pumped that they are coming to the festival? Um, gosh, there always are every year. Um, I'm really – I. I'm an HGTV girl, and the sure. Property Brothers are coming, and I, I, am, I am really excited. I don't own a house, but I want Jonathan and Drew – to fix the house that they're, I don't own. They're huge stars. They're they're huge stars. Every time I talk to someone about what shows they love and not um, scripted television, everyone goes straight to HDTV. Yes, it's crazy. At from it's like so, eight o'clock on until when you're sitting, you know, having it's a drink. It's so much fun to see people take down literal walls. Yes. and rebuild new ones. Yes. So I'm super excited about them, but I'm also. Um, I'm really excited about, uh, like, I have been doing this for a while, so I have some great friends with new books out. Um, Mm. A a friend of mine named Amy Spaulding is a young adult writer, and she has a new book coming out right before the festival, and uh, we'll be moderating a panel, be on a panel. I'm also really excited to to just kind of meet some of the people I've been emailing with that I didn't know before this year. I get to know new people year in and year out. Right, which leads me to 
to our yes. interaction. Yes, I, 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 I was, I was going to say that I was most excited to meet you, but now I've met you ahead of time. <laughs> no, so that's, see, that's you got, you, you know. Sorry. No, that's okay. Um, but I, li- I lived up to the expectations, right? You have totally lived up. Just and beyond. And handsome. I, Isn't it amazing? It is amazing. You know, I'm going to, I'm swooning on the other side oh. of the, you know, table here. It's not easy for Sam. He has to do this every I week. I know he's. It must be very uncomfortable for him. No, he gets through it. <laughs> yeah. He gets through it. Look at him chuckle him to himself. Exactly. Um, Marette and I have, uh, well, she was kind enough to reach out um, and have Reading Aloud yes. programmed into uh, the L.A. Times uh, Festival of Books. Which is awesome. We're doing a performance. Of something. On, of something. On, and this is, this is an exclusive, folks, September 9th. April. April 9th. <laughs> Holy moly. Just Why help. did I say September? I don't know. You're like already planning I'm for so next year. I'm so desperate for the fall. I just want the fall to come. I you know, don't like we, the summer. We do, our, we'll do, we do our big food event with Jonathan Gold in the fall. You can come okay, to that. Okay, I'll be there. I'll yeah. be there. So in <laughs> April, Saturday, April 9th, 4 p.m. That is correct. Reading Aloud is having a live event. Yes. As part of the LA Times Festival of Books. And it's going to be awesome. Um do we do we know any more about? Uh, we have heard nothing those? since we. I know. Then I feel like at the close of business today, we move on. I I agree, and I feel like you time know time is too tight. We we did our best efforts. We now know how long this stuff takes. Yeah, and so when like next year because. Yeah. One thing that I like to do is just sort of like hustle people into thinking they're doing something once and then make it a perennial thing. Yeah, so yeah, next yeah. year Great. when we're planning for the Reading Aloud live yes. podcast at the 2017 festival right, that right. you've already agreed to do yes. right here live on the air, yes. um, we will start planning <laughs> even earlier so that if we don't. Yeah. I, if we don't reach our goals this year with one of the ideas that we had, yes. we will plan earlier and we will get it yeah. for next year. And we also had a, a brief email conversation about potentially doing something on the side with Which this idea that we would be super great. Yeah. And so I think there's lots to explore there. So just to, to um, I feel like we're talking code to my <laughs> listeners. We are. Um, but there's nothing that that's nothing off. There's nothing, can, no. no. We tried to, so Moret reached out and was like, let's do an event with a podcast. Can we build something? I th- said yes. What if we do a live play reading? Uh, like that was a, Nate's idea, but thank was, you for yes. the credit. Well, that was, that was, that was my idea, but you, uh, yes and me. Um, and uh, I thought about doing like a, like a classic American play that is accessible and everyone like knows and, and then just star fuck it and get huge names to do it. Yes. So we had... Um, Long Day's Journey into Night, which my friend Crispin Wattell, who's a friend of the show, who read the uh, British Response the past 4th of July. If you didn't listen to that episode, go back and check it out. Robert Baker uh, read the Declaration of Independence. And then Crispin, who is a Brit, read the British Response, which nice. is really this like condescending letter from the king. It's just so hilarious. fantastic. Um, and he was part of the book club as well um, for H is for Hawk. Okay. Helen McDonald book. Uh, but he's a director by trade. He's going to direct the reading. And so he had cut down this four-hour play. Don't feel so bad. Don't feel bad because he re- really sort of like got reengaged in the play and and is in his jazz to direct it at some point. Right. But we had um, we had like Francis Cornwallery was like on the line to yes. like play mom, and I was going to play Jamie and my brother Rob was going to play uh, or I was going to play Edmund. My, Rob was going to play Jamie. So brothers actually playing brothers. It was compelling. It was going to be great. It was so, be so great. Yeah. So the folks uh, at Dramatist Play Service said no, no, no. There's a Broadway production happening right now. 
and they have bought the rights to all other major markets. Isn't that insane? I mean, it's one time at a free thing. It's not even a full production. No, no, but they think in their brains that someone going to see a reading of it in LA may think twice about when they vacation in New York in a month to not go to the production because they just saw it. It's just, it. Laws, man. It's uh, very strange. Yes. Anyway, we moved on to um, Edward Albee, which was a mistake because he's <laughs> a very prickly gentleman about the rights of his plays. We're trying to do um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which would be amazing, which is even a more classic, like accessible, and it's only four characters. Um, but we're having trouble with them as well. <laughs> yes. So, um, so that may not happen. It may happen. We'll see. But if not, we're going to do a full, fully produced live version of the podcast, which is a compelling interview with a person of note, uh, comedy essay readings, and dramatic readings yep. all together at once. Um, so we're going to have amazing people do that. So um, I, I thank you so much for reaching out to me. And, and no, thank you together. so much for agreeing to do it. And I know you were part of the Swingers Live read that we did last year. Yes. And that- that was, was so much fun. That was one of the things that sort of sparked this idea of, you know, we always try and, you know, at the festival every year, what can we do that's different or new that we haven't done before? And yeah, so, yeah. you know, we sort of jumped onto that live read train last year. Yeah. But then we were talking about there are so many great podcasts out there and people love going to sort of live podcasts. And totally. You, you and Reading Aloud seemed like a perfect natural fit. And we can't thank you enough for, you know, being willing to jump on board. I'm, I'm so excited to continue the work with you in developing this, this yeah. program. It's going to be really fun. I think it's going to be fantastic. Uh, Moret Orlis works for the LA Times. She's the Associate Director of Programming. Um, and events, and uh, April 9th and 10th is the LA Times Festival of Books. It's sort of a uh, must-go-to event if you live in Los Angeles and you I, have any interest in anything. I, I agree. It I agree. It a have, dollar. Right, exactly. You can take the train. You can have somebody drop you off and not even pay the metro fee. There are ways, my friends. Make it happen. Exactly. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Thank really you. It. Thank yeah. you for having me. Do you love books but find that you never have time to read them? I bet you do. I suffer from the same malady. Well, audible.com, we're going to fix that for you. Perfect solution. Audiobooks, right? And listen to those audiobooks that you've been desperately trying to get to uh, during your commute or at the gym or while you're walking your cat or dog. Say you have a cat on a leash and you're walking through the neighborhood and all the neighbors are looking at you because he's kind of suspect. You don't care because you get the new ePray Love in on your headphones. Audible.com has over 180,000 titles from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. iPhones, iPad, Android, Windows phones. Audible.com works on all those places, and the app is free. You can download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service, once you get it, it's yours. You own it. Also, if you don't like the book that you're listening to, great listen guarantee. Just return it and get a new one. It's that easy. So, also for our listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. So go to audible.com slash Nate today and start your free trial. Again, thank you for supporting Reading Aloud and supporting audible.com. Go there now and get a free 30-day trial. Do it. And stop walking your cat, you weirdo. Today's show is sponsored by Howl FM. It's like Netflix but for podcasts. And with Howl Premium, you get exclusive access to a brand new Howl original comedy series. 
It's called The Mysterious Secrets of Uncle Bernie's Botanarium. It's starring uh, Jermaine Clement from Fly of the Concords, one of the greatest comedies in the last 20 years. Uh, it's a fantastic show. I've dug into it. He's a genius, and it's kind of a must-listen. And with Howl Premium, it's there, exclusive, just for you. How much is Howl Premium? Nothing. $4.99 a month. And with the promo code READING that you're typing with your fingers, you get a full month free. So why not do it? You also get over 120 hours of new miniseries, uh, The Complete Woman, Finding the Funny with the Sklar Brothers, uh, Fruit, and 80 comedy albums, including um, all of uh, WTF and Mark Maron, all of Comedy Bang Bang, all of How Did This Get Made and Proper Humans, uh, every show that's on the Earwolf uh, brand. It's all there on Howl FM. So go to Howl FM now, type in promo code READING, and you'll get the first month free. And it's available on the computers. It's available on your telephones. Wherever you got electricity, you have Howl. So that's Howl, H-O-W-L dot F-M. Use the promo code READING for a free month trial and start getting better at being a person. It's Act Two. My name is Nate Cordry. You're listening to Reading Aloud. And here's a story that was suggested to me from one of our listeners, uh, it came to me from Brittany via Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, by the way, Reading Aloud Pod. Um, and uh, she suggested one of uh, Tom Parada's stories. She, she made a bunch of su- suggestions, but the story that stuck with her the most is a uh, short story called The Snowman, which was in Tom Parada's first uh, published book. It was a collection of short stories following this one protagonist, this young kid in a New Jersey suburb, a kid named Buddy. And every story is related to him and his life. This story, um, she just said it's, it's a gut punch, never been able to forget since reading it. So Brittany, thank you for your suggestion. If, and if you have suggestions for stuff to get read for the show, send us a, a message either at uh, readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at readingaloudpod and send me your suggestions. I read a bunch of suggestions and this one jumped out on me. And again, it, it, I'm repeating myself because I love Tom Parada and I've read stuff of his before. But this story is just so... It's cool and gnarly. So um, let's get to it. It's called The Snowman, and it's part of his first published collection. It's called Bad Haircut, Stories from the 70s. And I don't have permission from Tom Parada to do this. So if this gets back to Tom Parada, I don't know how to, I reached out to his publicist, but they never reached back. So Tom, I apologize. I'll pay you whatever it costs to read this story. I just really love his work. So um, here's me, Nate Cordry, reading The Snowman. Two days ago, the snow had swirled and sparkled as it fell. But now it lay hardened on the ground, packed into dirty gray lumps, the color of cigarette ash. I was wearing ski mittens and clumsily dribbling a basketball down Grand Avenue while my teammate Neil Duffy strummed air guitar on a snow shovel he'd borrowed from his parents' garage. We knew we looked stupid. That was the whole point. So it didn't really bother us when this kid in a sheepskin coat zipped by on an English racer, riding against traffic, and shouted, Assholes! Fuck you! I shouted back. 
Neil's guitar shovel turned into a machine gun as he whirled and blasted the jerk who was already receding into the grimy distance, an extra in the movie of our day. Then we laughed, as much at ourselves as at him. Of course we were assholes. Who else would be playing basketball outside in 20-degree weather just two days after the biggest snowstorm of the year? It was Neil's idea. Even then, in ninth grade, he had a clear vision of his future. He believed he would someday be a basketball legend, the next great white guy with a deadly jumper, a steady team player who respected the refs and always came through in the clutch. He was preparing for the day when a TV announcer would be able to say, you know how bad Duffy wanted it? Duffy wanted it so bad, he used to go out after blizzards, shovel off the court, and practice until his fingers froze. Then he'd go home, drink a cup of hot cocoa, and head back for more. Now that's dedication, Marv. Basketball didn't mean that much to me. I was a football player and only dabbled in nonviolent sports to keep in shape during the offseason. I was tagging along that morning because I had nothing better to do and liked the idea of participating in Neil's fantasies of fame and glory. He was good enough that you could almost believe they might come true. He went into these streaks sometimes where every shot that spun off his fingertips dropped through the net with a sweet, silky whisper. A look came over his face in these moments that was so distant and serene it seemed almost religious. Watching him, you might have thought he heard God calling his name or one of Charlie's angels. We were down by Premier Electric when I felt the hand on my shoulder. It was weird how quietly he managed to sneak up. He was straddling the crossbar of his English racer, smiling in a way that might have seemed friendly under other circumstances. What'd you say back there? His voice wasn't angry, but I knew he must have been mad to turn around and ride all the way back. He was a full head taller than me and a couple of years older, at least a junior, maybe even a senior. He looked like a rich kid with his shaggy blonde hair, sleepy eyes, and winter tan, the type that went on ski vacations and spent his summers gazing down at the world from the stilted height of a lifeguard chair. I bounced the ball to show him I wasn't intimidated, crunching the rock salt on the sidewalk. Come on, I said, making my voice as reasonable as possible. You called us assholes. He smiled a little harder, shaking his head in this slow, arrogant way like he felt sorry for me. A voice in my head said, stay calm. There were two of us and only one of him. And besides, he was wearing that beautiful sheepskin coat. Who would want to fight in a coat like that? Just tell me what you said, asshole. You heard me. I want to hear it again. I pondered my options. I didn't want to fight, but I didn't want to back down either. Rules were rules. If someone calls you an asshole for no reason, you definitely had the right to respond. I said, fuck you. I felt brave and defiant just then, as though I were standing up for an important principle, but I made one big mistake. I figured he'd have to get off his bike to start something. As a preliminary, I turned to give Neil the basketball. 
That was when the psycho lifeguard smashed me in the face. It wasn't the best punch in the world, but because he threw it flat-footed, it caught me square in the nose. He wasn't wearing gloves, and it felt like I'd been whacked with a frying pan. Hey, said Neil. My knees buckled, and the world went fuzzy, but I surprised myself by not falling down or dropping the ball. I just stood there, my head vibrating like a gong as he set his bicycle on the ground, then turned and raised his fists. He smiled dreamily, itching to hit me again. You get a pretty smart mouth, don't you? He asked, as if he hadn't started the whole thing. At first, I tasted just a trickle of blood, but then something happened. There was a rushing noise in my head, followed by a sudden release of pressure. Neil told me later that he'd never seen anything like it, the way the blood just erupted from my nose. The lifeguard was startled, too. His mouth dropped open, and his arms fell to his sides. I took advantage of his shock by whipping the basketball at his face. He cringed as it whizzed past his ear. I made my charge. When I slammed into him, we both lost our footing on the icy sidewalk. We rolled around like wrestlers in the dirty snow. He pounded me ineffectually on the back while I bled profusely on his coat, rubbing my nose with malicious pleasure back and forth across the sheepskin until I was almost drunk from the smell of it, the animal softness. It took him a while to catch on. Shit, he wailed. My coat! Had enough? I grunted. His body went limp. Yeah, We untangled ourselves and stood up. He looked down at the dark smears and swirls and splatters on his chest and made this pathetic whimper. He wiped frantically at the stains, but they'd already become part of his coat. Fuck, he said. My mom's gonna kill me. Serves you right, I told him. Yeah, said Neil. He was holding the shovel aloft with both hands, the red scoop trembling in the air like a battle flag. Serves you right. The lifeguard looked at me and rolled his eyes, almost like the fight had made us friends. Then he picked up his bike, climbed on, and pedaled off to show his mother what he'd done. I hadn't seen Andy Zirko for two years when he materialized in the doorway of the coin shop and came rushing across the street to see if I was okay. The fight had just ended, and I was sitting on the curb with one hand cupped under my nose to catch the dripping blood, waiting for Neil to return from McDonald's with some napkins. The Zerko I remembered was as pretty as a girl, with long, dark hair that fell like a shadow across half his face. But there was nothing pretty about the kid who squatted down next to me and told me to tilt back my chin. Someone had shaved his head, and I could see through the fuzzy stubble to the tiny razor cuts on his scalp. Despite the weather, he wasn't wearing a coat, just a blue and gray flannel shirt with the sleeves ripped off. In a calm voice, he told me that he'd seen everything. How the big kid had sucker-punched me and my friend had let me down. It was disorienting to hear his version of events. I felt like I'd bled my way to at least a draw, but Zerko made it sound terrible. Like I'd got the shit kicked out of me in a dirty fight. You want to get that guy? He asked. Yeah, I said, not really meaning it. The word was barely out of my mouth when he jumped up and waved his skinny arm. 
It seemed to me that he somehow conjured a car out of thin air, a jacked-up Monte Carlo that skidded to a halt in front of us, the back passenger door swinging open just inches from my face. I heard Neil calling my name from down the block as Zerko helped me up and shoved me into the car. We swung a U-turn on the busy street and accelerated toward Cranewood. Kid on a bike, Zerko snapped at the driver. He snatched an oily undershirt off the floor and pressed it to my nose. At the first red light, I reached under my butt to remove the hard piece of cardboard I'd mistakenly sat upon and found myself staring at a pretty little girl with ribbons in her hair and elaborate braces on her arms and legs. The poster child was smiling bravely, floating on a field of blackness, the words, Won't you please help? blazing above her head in bold white letters. It was a fundraising card for muscular dystrophy, with rows of tiny slots cut into it for nickels, dimes, and quarters. Most of the slots had coins in them. Zerko yanked it out of my hand and kept on talking. I'm telling you, he said. It was the cheapest shot I ever saw. They were just standing there talking and pow! I couldn't believe it. He didn't even get off the bike. The driver turned to me for confirmation. His name was Cockroach, and he was an ugly kid with squinty eyes, a greenish complexion, and one stray tooth that poked across his bottom lip like a fang. Still, I appreciated his concern. He started it? Yeah. I pulled the undershirt away from my face. He called me an asshole, so I said, fuck you. He was bigger, but I didn't care. Cockroach's friend Danny peered at me over the passenger headrest. He was normal looking, except for a ring of whitehead zits encircling his mouth. I wondered why he didn't just pop them. He suckered you? Totally. I saw it, Zurico reminded them. He took the undershirt out of my hand and dabbed gently at my lips and chin. His pussy friend just stood there and watched. He should have whacked that faggot across the face with his shovel. The Monte Carlo's engine throbbed like a bad headache. Cockroach hit the gas a split second before the light changed, and we roared through the intersection like cops on a chase. Zerko licked his fingertips and rubbed at the dried blood on my cheek. Don't worry, he said. We'll find the fucker. On a hunch of Zerko's, we turned off Grand and snaked our way through the developments on the outskirts of Cranewood. He navigated like a psychic, leaning over the front seat and gazing through the windshield with fierce intensity, directing Cockroach on an elaborate series of loops and turns. We scoured the neighborhood for at least 15 minutes, but the kid was nowhere in sight. By that point, my nose had stopped bleeding and my head had cleared. I thought about Neil and wondered if he'd made it to the playground. I wanted to be there with him shooting horse and working on my behind-the-back dribble. The fight seemed stupid now, a wrong turn in the middle of an otherwise decent Saturday. It would have been fine with me if I never saw the lifeguard again for the rest of my life. It's okay, I said. We might as well forget it. Zerko was startled by my remark. His head whipped around, and he stared at me for a long time like he was trying to remember who I was. I still couldn't get used to the way he looked with his head shaved. His eyes were huge in his head, but glazed over, lifeless. He touched his index finger to the tip of my nose. Don't whip out on me, he warned. I'm not wimping out. You said you wanted to get this kid, right? He smiled when I nodded. 
Then he reached under the front seat, pulled out a crowbar, and pressed it into my hand. He didn't let go until my mitten wrapped around it. Three years earlier, Zerko and I had been teammates for a single season of Pop Warner football. He was two grades ahead of me and only played on the peewees because he was too small and skinny to compete on the midget level. I remember laughing with him at practice and pounding on his shoulder pads to loosen up before kickoff. One night, a bunch of us went to the Sagnagnus Carnival, and Zerko showed off by swallowing half a dozen live goldfish. He told me afterward that he could feel them thrashing around in his stomach, screaming for their mommies. The year after that, Zerko made his mark on the world. He got busted for dumping paint in rich people's swimming pools. He'd slip into their yards in the middle of the night with a gallon of Sears weather beater, pry off the top, and drop the open can like a depth charge straight to the bottom of the deep end. He fouled more than 20 pools in one summer, and might have ruined a few more if he hadn't developed an urge to release the paint in broad daylight. He told the cops he wanted to watch the colors swirl. After the arrest, some detectives came to Harding with a search warrant for his locker. From what I heard, they found a blowtorch, a shoebox full of hood ornaments, and a stethoscope that had been reported missing from the nurse's office. Now, in the car, I felt the need to ask Circo some serious questions. I wanted to know who shaved his head, what it looked like when the paint blossomed in the water, and if reform school was as tough as people said. I wanted to ask him what a heart sounded like through a stethoscope, and if he really expected me to hit someone with a crowbar. I wanted to ask him these things, but it was too late. We turned a corner, and there he was. The lifeguard in the sheepskin coat. The jerk who'd call me an asshole. Cockroach hit brakes the instant we spotted him. He was about halfway down the block, straddling his bike at the edge of a driveway, studying a snowman in someone's front yard. They were only about ten feet apart, and the lifeguard's head was cocked at a funny angle, as though he and the snowman were having a conversation. He stiffened, suddenly, and turned in our direction. Somehow, after shooting us only the quickest glance, he seemed to know who we were and what we wanted. He jerked his bike around to make a run for it. Get him! cried Zerko. In the confusion of the moment, Cockroach freaked out. He aimed the Monte Carlo straight at the lifeguard and floored it. Our tires whirred on the sandy ice, then caught. We hurtled forward like we'd been blasted out of a cannon. The lifeguard had quick reflexes. Instead of continuing into the street, he whipped his bike around at the last second and hauled ass down the sidewalk, heading for the intersection we'd just vacated. It was a bold maneuver. Amidst a chorus of groans and curses, we shot right past him. Cockroach freaked out again and locked up the brakes. We spun out on the slick pavement, sliding sideways for the length of three houses. All four of us screamed at once as the force of the skid pitched us sideways in our seats, then forward, then back again, and we slammed with an emphatic thunk into a bank of curbside snow. It was a thrilling Starsky and Hutch maneuver, a feeling you'd pay money for at an amusement park. No one was hurt, but by the time Cockroach got us backed out and pointed in the right direction, the lifeguard had vanished. Zerko pounded the seat in frustration. A grim silence prevailed as we resumed our manhunt, prowling methodically along the nearby streets. I pretended to be upset, but deep down, I was relieved. I'd lost my stomach for vengeance. Wait, said Zerko. Go back. 
Cockroach glanced at him in the rearview mirror. Back where? A thoughtful smile broke the tension on Zerko's face. He shook his head in disbelief, amazed at his own blindness. To the snowman, he said. The way Zerko had it figured, we'd caught the kid in his own driveway. All we had to do was go back and wait. He'd have to show up eventually, and then we'd nab him. How do you know, I asked. It's obvious. He was in the driveway. It wasn't obvious to me, but I didn't argue. If it was my driveway, I would have dropped the bike and run like hell for the front door. Still, I didn't want to underestimate Zerko. He seemed to have a sixth sense about tracking people. It amazed me that we'd found the kid in the first place. He was smart about the surveillance, too. There were lots of empty spaces in the street, but he ordered Cockroach to parallel park in a tight spot between a van and a pickup, across the street and a few houses down from the driveway where we'd spotted the lifeguard. He'd have to be right on top of us to know we were there. Cockroach passed the dead time lighting matches and extinguishing them with a hiss between his spit-moistened fingertips. Danny took a fake nose and glasses out of the glove compartment and sent Cockroach into hysterical giggling fits with imitations of people I didn't recognize. Even with these diversions, though, the air inside the car quickly grew stale with boredom. Cockroach ran out of matches. Somebody farted and we all rolled down our windows. Danny turned around, staring at Zerko through the vacant frames of his Joe glasses. Hey, Andy, we gonna sit here all day? Yeah, added Cockroach. I'm starving. Zerko rubbed his stubble. I thought he was going to snap at them, but he kept his cool. Me and my buddy can handle this. Why don't you guys go to McDonald's and come pick us up when you're finished? If you don't see us, honk the horn. Despite the crowbar in my hand, I felt relaxed and nearly cheerful, standing with Zerko in the middle of the windswept street, watching the Monte Carlo fishtail around the corner and out of sight. The worst seemed to be over. I didn't think the lifeguard would be coming back and couldn't see Zerko lasting very long in the cold without a coat. Hey, Andy, I said. Want my mittens? He'd blown his hands and shook his head. We were the only people in sight. Come on, he said. Let's check out that snowman. Zerko slapped me on the back as we headed across the street. Now that no one was going to be hurt, I could appreciate the morning for the incredible chain of adventures it had been. A fist fight, a car chase, a near accident, even a stakeout. Neil was going to be jealous when I told him what he'd missed. Jesus, said Zerko. Look at this fucking thing. We'd passed several snowmen on our search of the neighborhood, but none of them even came close to this one. It was taller than we were and lovingly constructed, the kind of thing you'd definitely stop to admire if you happened to pass it on your bike. It had charcoal eyes, a carrot nose, even a jaunty bowler hat. Its smile was a crescent of bright pennies, and its buttons a row of Oreo cookies running down its chest. The most striking feature of all was the snowman's heart a silver valentine of Hershey's Kisses, inside of which someone had got a snapshot of a Labrador retriever, a pudgy black dog with a sad, intelligent face. The picture was wrapped in plastic, carefully wedged into the snow. The dog must have died, I said. Zerko didn't hear me. He was standing on his tiptoes, reaching for the snowman's bowler hat.
He grabbed it, dusted off, then sailed it like a frisbee into the street. The hat flew a surprising distance before skipping into the gutter. It's like a shrine to the dog, I said, unable to conceal the wonder in my voice. This time Zirkel looked at me, but he still didn't answer. Instead, he plucked the carrot right out of the snowman's face and tossed it over his shoulder. Then he removed the charcoals and erased the smile a cent at a time. I didn't get upset until he pulled the photo out of the heart and crushed it in his fist like a candy wrapper. Jesus, Andy, that's someone's dog. He dropped the picture onto the ground, then turned to me with his hand out. I gave him what he wanted. A snowman doesn't stand much of a chance against a crowbar. When Zerko was finished, it was nothing but garbage in the snow, garbage and a handful of pennies. Come on, he said. Let's see if anyone's home. I wish I could say I followed him up the front steps to talk him out of it or to make sure he didn't do anything crazy, but the truth is, I just followed him. The door was open, and we walked right in. The house was quiet and warm, a nice place to enter. Chucky, a woman called out. Is that you? Zerko cupped a hand around his mouth. Chucky, he sang in a mocking falsetto. Is that you? Who is that? She asked. As though we were invited guests, Zerko marched right down the hallway toward the source of the voice. A bald, skinny kid with bare arms and a snowy crowbar in his hand. I hung back, trying to find my bearings, unable to believe that we'd walked into a stranger's house without knocking or ringing the bell. All at once, everything in the world seemed possible. The worst stuff I could even begin to imagine. I watched him turn into a doorway and listened to the muffled sounds of a conversation. Maybe a minute passed before Zerko stuck his head out and beckoned me with a crowbar. I shook my head, no. His eyes got big. He nodded, yes. My wet sneakers squeaked on the floor. There must have been blood on my face because the woman gasped when she saw me. My God, she said. Did Chucky do that? Damn right he did, said Zerko. All I could do was stare. She was about my mother's age, a semi-pretty woman with cloudy eyes and loose brown hair she hadn't bothered to comb. I felt embarrassed for her. It was close to noon and she was still wearing her robe, a dingy pink thing with a sunburst coffee stain on one lapel. We'd caught her in the middle of Scooby-Doo. She reached for a glass on the coffee table, then thought better of it and pulled back her hand. Are you sure it was Chucky? Zerko nodded. We know Chucky. She wasn't interested in him. She kept her eyes fixed on me, as though I were the most important person in the world. He's a big kid, I told her, spreading my hands to approximate the width of his shoulders. A big kid in a sheepskin coat. He cursed me out and punched me in the face. Her shoulders slumped when I said that, and her face just sort of collapsed. She closed her eyes and bit her bottom lip. My feeling toward Zerko at that moment was something approaching awe. He's not a bad kid, she told me. He just doesn't know how to control his temper. Chucky's mother leaned in close to me at the kitchen table, washing my face with a warm, soapy washcloth. I could smell liquor on her breath and see way down the front of her robe. Poor baby, she told me. You bled a lot. 
Zerko snickered, but he looked unhappy and confused. The woman's kindness had stolen his momentum. He pushed his chair away from the table and stood up. Come on, buddy, let's get out of here. I tried to get up, but Chucky's mother pressed me back into the chair. Just hold on. Chucky should be home any minute. I want him to apologize. There couldn't have been any blood left, but she kept caressing my face with a washcloth, letting me see her nipples. Poor baby, she said again, touching the washcloth to my ear. I imagined myself in a tub of warm water, Chucky's mother washing me everywhere, her robe open to the waist, whispering as she scrubbed. Zerko wandered over to the refrigerator and helped himself to some orange juice. He chugged noisily from the carton, letting the yellow liquid dribble down his chin. He was just showing off, trying to get her attention, but she didn't give him the satisfaction. He put down the OJ and walked over to the sink. There was a nearly empty bottle of vodka right next to the toaster. Zerko unscrewed the cap and took a long swig, grimacing as he swallowed. Chucky's mother spun to face him, clutching her robe shut with one hand. With her back to me, she no longer looked like a woman to have fantasies about. She was a grown-up, a mother who drank vodka and watched cartoons in her bathrobe on Saturday morning. Put that down, she snapped. What the hell's wrong with you anyhow? Zerko leered at her, tapping the crowbar against his thigh. What the hell's wrong with Chucky? The woman didn't answer right away. The question seemed to have stunned her. She was a little unsteady on her feet. You get out, she said, indignantly slurring her words, suddenly sounding drunk. You're your little friend here. Who the hell do you think you are? Zerko grinned. He was having fun now. He took another swig of the vodka. Maybe we don't want to. Come on, I said. Let's get going. Zerko shook his head. She threw the washcloth down the table. It landed with a wet slap. I said, get out. Zerko shrugged. I don't feel like it. The phone was on the wall by the refrigerator. She took a step in that direction. So did he. No, he said in a soft, scary voice. I don't think so. I can't say how long we remained frozen in place waiting for someone to make the next move. It was probably only a couple of seconds, but it felt longer. I do know that it was the sound of the opening door that broke our stillmate. All three of us turned at once. Chucky whimpered in the archway, hugging a grocery bag tight to his chest. He was a big kid in a sheepskin coat, but he wasn't the lifeguard. Not even close. Holy shit, said Zerko. Something was wrong with Chucky. Water on the brain was the phrase I'd heard people use. His head was bigger than it was supposed to be, and it swayed like a pendulum as he stood there, as though his neck weren't quite strong enough to hold it steady. He had very little hair and thick glasses that made his eyes seem tiny and far away. Chucky? his mother demanded. Did you hit this boy? She pointed at me, and shame filled my body like a dense, hot liquid. Chucky moved his lips, struggling to form the words. His voice was high and reed-like. My snowman, he said. The bag slipped through his arms and burst open at his feet. 
Lots of soup cans went rolling across the floor. Chucky, she said sternly, please answer the question. My snowman, he repeated, choking back a sob. I dropped to my knees and began gathering up the cans. Every one of them was exactly the same. Campbell's chicken and stars, chicken and stars, chicken and stars. Did you use foul language? Zirko knelt beside me to help out. We traded a quick glance, and his eyes were wild with remorse. A horn sounded in the street outside. We burst out of the house and sprinted across the lawn to the Marni Carlo. Zirko got there first and pulled open the door. We froze in unison. The lifeguard was in the back seat. He had a rectangle of silver duct tape pressed over his mouth and a hunting knife resting across his throat. Look what we found, said Danny. He was holding the knife and grinning like a maniac, still wearing the nose and glasses. Yeah, said Cockroach. We walked into McDonald's. Guess who's there? The lifeguard stared at me, pleading with his blue eyes. I felt like I'd stepped out of the boundaries of my own life. It would never be allowed back in. Please don't hurt him, I said. Danny's smile disappeared. The lifeguard shut his eyes, bracing himself for pain. I saw myself at the supper table with my parents, trying to explain my innocence. Let him go, said Zirko. The lifeguard opened his eyes. Danny squinted through the fake glasses. Really? Zirko nodded. There was an odd look on his face like he was disgusted by his own decision. Danny withdrew the knife. Without removing the tape from his mouth, the lifeguard got out of the car and stood politely by the curb in his blood-stained coat. I watched him out the back window as we drove away. He didn't move a muscle, and I couldn't help thinking how sorry he must have been for what he called me. Neil was still at the playground when Cockroach dropped me off. He didn't bother to acknowledge me as I trudged across the snowy field to join him. He didn't seem to be having much fun. He'd shoveled off half a court, but it was really too cold to be shooting hoops. His hands were pink and stiff, nearly frozen. I grabbed a rebound and threw him a bounce pass. His baseline jumper was short. The whole backboard shivered when the ball struck the rim. I shot a layup with my mitten, then fed him another pass. He caught the ball and held it. That was Zirko, wasn't it? Yeah. I thought he was in reform school. I guess they let him out. Did you find the kid? No, I lied. Neil's next shot was an air ball way too long. It arched past the basket right into my hands. I wanted to hit him, he said, but I couldn't do it. It's okay. I bled all over his coat. Neil smiled. That was pretty cool. He tried to spin the ball globetrotter style on his fingertip, but it slid right off. Your ball sucks, he told me. It's not mine. I stole it from a black kid. Why'd you do that? I shrugged. My Caravello sort of made me. Neil made a face and put up another air ball. He missed his next shot and the one after that. I know I'm wrong, but in my memory, it seems like he lost his touch forever on that freezing afternoon. For all his talent... He never even made the varsity team at Harding. He's a landscaper now. When I'm home in Darwin, I see him driving through town sometimes, towing a trailer full of lawnmowers. I never became the football hero I expected to be either. I lasted one more season, got tired of it, and drifted on to other things. I never saw the lifeguard again, or Danny, or Chucky, or his mother.
I did run into Cockroach at a bar once. He was with a girl and asked me to call him Frank. As for Zerko, there's not a lot to tell. He dropped out of high school and joined the Navy, floating far away from Darwin. But all that was the future. And the future didn't exist for Neil and me, as we tried to salvage the remainder of that freezing Saturday with a game of one-on-one. The score is 5-3, his favor, when we stopped for a breather at the top of the key. Hey, Neil, I said, do you have a dog? Yeah, German Shepherd. Boy or girl? Girl, Sheba. I bounced the ball a couple times, searching for a way to phrase my next question. There was a big knot inside of me I was hoping to untangle. Do you like her? Would you be really sad if she died? His gaze traveled up from the ball to my face. He looked hurt. She's only seven. His answer must have satisfied me. I tossed him the ball. Check, he said, bouncing it right back. I gave a pump fake and took it to the hoop. Mart Orlis is running the uh, Festival of Books downtown, and it's going to be insane. Um, so if you're in the Los Angeles area, uh, come down and check it out. Uh, it's, I, I did this really fun live reading last year with um, uh, Jensen Karp, who put together a live read of the Swingers script, uh, which was great fun. It was a really fun cast. And, and so uh, Reading Aloud is going to do a live show this, 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 uh, this time. It's going to be great. So um, I'm very excited. Again, Saturday, April 9th, 4 p.m., um, at the Festival of Books. So uh, big thanks um, to Marit for coming down. And uh, big thanks to Tom Parada. <laughs> I'm assuming Tom will be cool with me reading a story of his. It's like, you gotta buy. Tom Parada is one of my favorites. I mean, listen, he has a lot of great books. Little Children, The Abstinence Teacher, uh, Joe College, the list goes on and on. Election, um, Nine Inches, which I read a story from earlier in the, in the season. Uh, but thanks so much for um, for listening to this episode of Reading Aloud. And come out to see us at the L.A. Times Festival of Books. What are you drinking? I did not realize my mic Your was mic on. Your mic was on, you. I'm so fucking sorry. Well, let's get out. We should just finish the episode right now. We'll see you next week. Jesus. I love you, Nate. I'm on the fence about you. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. What is the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium? Nettle spaghettarium nocturnum. The night spaghetti. Looks like spaghetti. Yes, but specifically when you eat it at night. Why none other than the biggest, boldest Howl original show yet? I've seen a crab with seven legs. Starring Jermaine Clement in a truly original fantasy adventure. Oh, what's that awful smell, Solita? That's the sea air, sir. Experience the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium today, only on Howl. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.